Let's pray. Awful Jesus, all I am and have and ever hope to be, all for you, O Lord. Sincerely pray that that is the sincere cry of our hearts, Lord, to relinquish our wills, our desires, our wants to submit to your Lordship. Father, this is your word. You save by it and you sanctify through it. That is our cry. Change what needs to be changed. Save who needs to be saved. Call those who need to be called. Sanctify those. That is all of us that need sanctification. Speak this morning. Glorify yourself in your name. Amen. Open your Bibles to James chapter 1. We found ourselves in verse 17 again this morning. So we return to this passage. And by now you should know the outline of the section which ends next week in verse 18. Uh, Hopefully. With me, I never finish Sermon, so we may come back to verse 18. I'm going to read from verse 12 through to verse 18. Let no one say when he is tried, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil. And he himself tempts no one. So in response to this reality, James says, but... Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Take note of that. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. The outline of the section that I gave you can be stated as, number one, the divine essence of God in verse 13. Your wife's at the back there. (laughs) The innate nature of man doesn't follow his wife. There there you go. Innate nature of man (laughs) in verse 14 and 15. The immutable character of God, verse 16 and 17. And the divine work of God in verse 18. So you, you have the conceptual structure of these verses, and you should be able to see it by now. We've been in it for a couple of weeks. Now, as we begin this morning, we see that James provides two features about God's immutability, that is, God's unchangeable nature. Last week, we saw that God is a good and a giving Father. In the beginning of verse 17, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. That clause 
by itself tells us the nature of God and it illustrates that God as a father is a good giving father. So now let me set the stage for the second point. There's some of you who weren't here last week, so this may benefit some of you and those of you who were here last week, this will be revision to most of you. We saw that God, being a giving uh, good father, gives two gifts singularly. If you were there on Wednesday, I explained how these two gifts come down in an individual act. Um, let me illustrate it this way. When you do tandem jumping, you know what tandem jumping is when you're in a plane or you go to the Van Staden's Bridge, and I don't know if they do it there, but people jump from there. So you do a tandem jump. You jump together and you hook to another person. You go down together, but it's two people, right? So he jumped, but he jumped with someone else. So one jump, two people, one cord. When you go down, you go together. You go down together, one cord. That's the imagery here. Two gifts, the giving, the act of giving of good gifts, and the perfect, mature, complete gift comes down singularly. Hiram said to me when I said that, the lights went on. I think some of you can um, relate to that. When you got saved, life didn't become rosy. I mean, your soul was saved, but things got hard. Some of you lost jobs. Um, some of you have gone through horrendous uh, personal struggles. That is what James is pointing to. The gift of salvation, the mature, complete gift of salvation, comes with the gift of suffering. Not separate. In the context here, James used good gifts as part of that ongoing nature of the Father who gives us all things good. That includes our trials because that is the context here. Verse 2 through to verse 13 related uh, uh, to trials. To 12, sorry, verse 12. Now we didn't get to look at the implications of this last week, so now I'm going to take my leftover Scraps from last week and added into here. There's biblical evidence that proves these, this point. That God gives salvation and trials, hardship and afflictions at the same time. Some of you may remember, Don was preaching through this um, for the last couple of fifth Sundays of the month. The Beatitudes, right? Turn to it. Matthew chapter 5, if you don't know where it is. Matthew 5. Look at verse 3. And he opened his mouth and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Take note of that. This is not how you become blessed, this is the reality of being blessed. This is the reality of a child of God. This is the reality of the kingdom citizen. That is what Matthew is talking about. Those who are already in the kingdom, who already participate of Christ's kingdom. This is true of them. Blessed are the poor. 
in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, that is now, for they shall be future comforted. Blessed are the meek now, for they shall inherit the what? Earth. Take note of that. We tend to think heaven. We are going to dwell on earth. It's part of God's promise to us. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness now, for they shall be satisfied. It will become full reality in a future day. Blessed are the merciful now, for they shall receive fullness of mercy is the implication there. Blessed are the poor now. I'm adding in the word now for effect. That is the implication. In heart, for they shall see God. Future. Blessed are the peacemakers, that is, by implication now, for they shall be called sons of God. Look at verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted. Blessed now while you're being persecuted. Why? And utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice, be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now some of you may say, well, there you go. It says the reward is in heaven. Well, the reward that he's speaking about is the person, not the thing. Relates to Christ. The blessed state is reserved for those who are in the kingdom. So don't get this wrong. The Beatitudes is not written to us to show us how to become good citizens. This is true of us as we are citizens. We are blessed. And one of the aspects of being blessed is that you are one who is persecuted. You will be persecuted if you are in the kingdom. Why do I mention this? Because this, these Beatitudes do not just demonstrate association with Christ. It demonstrates devotion to Christ. Those who have devoted themselves to Christ live according to His kingdom rule. They don't live by any other rule. They live by one law. That is the law of Christ. Therefore, those who live by Christ's kingdom rule naturally live in contradistinction to this worldly rule. Does that make sense? You live by Christ's rule, you are then set in contradistinction or in contradiction to the worldly rule. That is why you get persecuted. Because you're not from the world. You're in the world, but you're not from the world. You don't follow the world's rules. That is why God's People are hated. Let me restate that. We do not follow the laws, the commands, the regulations that change God's word. For instance, the definition of marriage has been changed. Right? It's now open to two loving people. God says marriage is defined by a man, one man and one woman in creation. That's the standard. I don't care what the world does with the definition. That is not part of God's kingdom rule. 
We live by His rule. The world has changed the definition of gender. We don't follow that, right? Now let me push the envelope a little closer to home. What about discipline? My kids and I are reading through the book of Proverbs, and my wise son said um, the, the folly, or oh, sorry, folly is, is in the, the heart of a child. And I said to him, what drives that folly away? The rod of discipline. <laughs> he knows it. Well, they know it. They know it's true. Because they can see their own folly now. They, they recognize, yeah, we do foolish things all the time. What is God's solution to that? You allow that child to go on the way that he wants to go on? He will control your life. So in order to bend that reed, what do you do? You haul out the rod of discipline on the seat of learning to correct the thinking. You know what God does to his nation, Israel? He calls them my children. He uses a pagan nation such as the Chaldeans and the Babylonians um, as a rod of discipline. Why? Because he loves them. You know what Proverbs says? A father who doesn't discipline his child hates his child. So, I don't care what the government says or what the world says about the definition of child abuse. That is not child abuse. That is loving correction. That is what God requires. That is kingdom rule by which we live. So, we need to get out of this realm where we are controlled by the government, controlled by the world. We are His people. We live by His rules. End of discussion. Anyway, that wasn't my point. My point is that when you get saved, God gives you two things. Not only salvation, but the gift of suffering. Philippians chapter 1, verse 29. It is crystal clear in this passage. For it has been given, granted to you, that is the word given or granted, to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only what? Believe in Him. So, let me state it in the positive. It has been given to you to believe in Him. That's what he's saying. Now look at the next line. But also, suffer for His sake. See the two? It's been given to you to suffer for Him. But it's also been given to you to be saved in Him. Both are given by God at the same time. You don't suffer as a believer before you become a believer, right? You can't. You're not a believer. The minute you become a child of God, guess what blessing comes with it? Affliction. Suffering. In fact, look at what Paul says. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now here that I still have. It's still ongoing. That is why James has this ongoing idea of giving. God gives and gives. And part of the giving is our affliction. God not only gives the ability to believe, but also to participate in suffering. 2 Timothy 3.12, you don't have to turn there, says this. Those who desire to live godly lives will, what? Face persecution. 
those who desire to live in accordance with the law of God, with the righteousness of Christ, uh, in accordance with the kingdom rules, they will be persecuted. Why? Because the worldly system is contradistinction to God's laws. There will always be a conflict. You've got two kingdoms at war. There will always be a conflict. That's why you are persecuted. Over and over we find that salvation comes with a grace gift of affliction. These hardship, trials, maturing afflictions are God's momentary, take note of this, momentary validating blessings, validating blessings that we are His in this world. The reason why He brings suffering is not only to discipline us, but to show us that yes, you have been saved, and this is how you know that you are mine. Because in my kingdom, this world will fight against you. As my kingdom citizens, this world will oppose you and persecute you. That's how you know that you are mine. Didn't Jesus say that? They will hate you and persecute you because they have not received me. Be of good courage, my beloved brothers. When you are persecuted for the cause in the name of Christ... It's a true sign that you are His. But when we avoid persecution, we do everything to avoid it. What does it say about our faith? When it is a gift of God. I, th- uh, I can't remember if I said it, if I read it somewhere. I think I said it um, here in this pulpit that We should be ready to receive God's gift of suffering as readily as we would receive God's gift of blessing. We love the blessings. Oh Lord, please send the blessings. But nobody prays, Lord, I'm battling with a sin. Afflict me until I repent. Nobody prays that, right? We don't want that hardship. I've said before, the way that we respond to trials and afflictions betray our true convictions. That's a poem. You'll get it later. We may say we believe and trust in God's goodness, but when that goodness doesn't fit our understanding of what goodness should look like, we turn on God. Why, Lord, have you done this to me? Why now? You know what James says in verse 14 and 15? The sin that you are experiencing, the temptation to sin is not blamed on God. That's all you. James provides a theological look because the foundation of the believer's confidence is a robust understanding of who God is. When you know who He is, you can properly respond to what He gives to you. Now, that was my ending of last week. James reveals the most surprising and unexpected perfection of God. And most say he doesn't fit the context. He's like he's breaking a rank. He's throwing in something there. Verse 17. Every good and gift and every perfect gift is from above. And here's that, uh, that surprising element. Coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. James says, here are two unchangeable realities about God. First, he's a good and giving father. Secondly, he is a good, unchanging father. 
The emphasis here in the middle of verse 17 is the unchangeable nature of God. Now this verse is often used in theology books, especially uh, systematic theology, to speak about the immutability, the unchangeable nature or perfection of God. And rightly so, it does speak about that. James makes the case that God is consistent, unchanging, and therefore dependable. There are two components that is found in this last part of this verse. And it is number one, God is the father of lights. And number two, God is unchanging as a father. He is the unchanging father. So James makes the case that God is not subject to the changes of humanity, but also he is not changed by anything. Nothing affects it the way that it affects us. This is a subordinate clause. It falls underneath the main clause in the beginning of verse 17. So every good and every perfect gift comes from above, or comes, yeah, from above, coming down from the Father of lights. The coming down relates to the gifts, what the Father gives, and the way the Father gives it. And now he's telling us why. So instead of location telling us where it is coming from, he gives us a person. Remember, I says from above implies coming down, directional. So you would expect location, right? Coming down from Jerusalem or above, from, from above. There's that directional um, implicit in the word. But instead of giving us a location, he gives a person. Breaks normal thought there. Coming down from the Father of light. So the emphasis in this last clause is the one who is known as the father of lights. James says, this is how you know that the gift is good and perfect. This is how you know that the gift is always good and perfect. Why? Look at its source. It's not coming down from just some random place. It comes from the father of lights. Now what is meant here by the Father of Lights. One of the challenges that we have in reading the New Testament, especially the Jewish books in the New Testament, they are books that are written predominantly to Jews, is that we think with New Testament minds. Right? We are saved and we read the New Testament. Most of us read it first. And so that becomes the, the picture through which we understand the New Testament. Secondly, we think through the eyes of Paul and the other apostles. We are so... Um, well-educated on Pauline theology or Petrine theology or Johannine theology, that that becomes the worldview through which we see the rest of Scripture. However, what is the first book that is written in the New Testament? It is the book of James, the earliest book. So James is not referencing Paul's use of father, because Paul is writing to predominantly what? Gentiles. So when he speaks of father, it is slightly different to the way James and Peter at times uses the word father. So when James writes here, he writes in a very Jewish way to a very Jewish audience. And there's a reason for that. Because he knows by using this hook word, he can conjure, for lack of a better word, draw out of them a tremendous amount of imagery and understanding. By this time, they've got the Old Testament translated into Greek. So they are reading in the same language that he's writing now. So some of the words that he uses would resonate with them as they think back. Oh, 
hang on, Father, I know that. Because it speaks of God, Yahweh, the creator of all things, as Father. And that's where we're going to go. Why this phrase? And I'm going to break from my normal way of uh, preaching in that I, I generally, you know this by now, stay in the text, right? That's what I do. I'm not like other preachers who are skilled to go wide. I don't have that capacity. My, like I said to you, I'm very simple. My mind works in small bits of information. So I stay limited to the context of the book. Today, I'm going to go wide. and I hope it doesn't fail. Why, why this phrase? Number one, because of what it intimates about the nature of God's relationship with his children. First of all, fatherhood of God, also known as paterology, demonstrates the fatherly concern, the love of God, and the care of God over his suffering people. Remember that. So father is used in a specific context. And so Jews would think of God in relation to him in that way. It presents him as the one who not only has authority over all things, but is responsible for those who are under him. So the fatherhood of God is a common reference in the Old Testament, especially with regard to the relationship of God with the nation Israel. Go to Psalm 68. I'm going to take my time to do this. Since we are not Jews, we do not have the historical background that they have when James uses these words. But what I want you to note here is how they would have seen the Father. (coughs) James 68. Sorry, there is no James 68. (coughs) Unless you read a heretical book. Psalm 68. (coughs) Take note of verse 5. Give careful attention to the repeated words in the next few verses. Father of the fatherless. What is a fatherless person? Orphan. Father of the fatherless or orphans and protector of widows is God in his holy habitation. What is the psalm about? There's one key feature that I was taught in um, the study of Psalms. Generally, what the author of Psalms does is in the first line, he tells you what the psalm is about. Psalm 23, what is it about? Yahweh as shepherd. It's that simple. Look at verse 1. God shall arise. His enemies shall be scattered. And those who hate him shall flee. God will defend his people. That's what he's talking about. Okay, so in that context, in the middle of the fact that we are either afflicted or in danger of losing our land and our people, what is the theological truth that the author holds on to here? David, father of the orphans, and protector of widows is God. This is who he is by nature. He fathers those who do not have fathers. He protects those who are unprotected. 
So our God defends us, is what he's saying. Go to Psalm 10, verse 14. But you do see, for you note, mischief and vexation. Pause there. Okay. What did I just teach you? Hermeneutical rule. What is the purpose of the psalm? You go to verse 1. Let's look at verse 1. Why, O Yahweh, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? Pretty clear, right? Hardship affliction, God seems far away. Why does God seem so far from our affliction? Here's the answer. They may say, you don't see it. Just look at verse um, 12. Arise, O Yahweh, O God, lift up your hand, forget not the afflicted. Why does the wicked renounce God and say in his heart, you will not call to account. This is God, will not call to account. Note verse 14, but you do see. You do see it. For you note mischief and vexation. Every child should note that. You see mischief and vexation that you may take it into your hands, that you, um, that you, the helpless, commit himself. Uh, to you, sorry, the helpless, commit himself. For you have been the helper of the what? Fatherless. Again, that word, orphans. God in the midst of suffering, is the protector and the helper of those who need him. Deuteronomy chapter 10. Why am I going backwards? Because theology is most commonly um, leans on antecedent theology, uh, antecedent revelation. So things that written, was written before is revealed and expanded on later. So Psalms is an echo of what we find here in Deuteronomy chapter 10. Look at verse 17. <clears throat> For the Lord your God is a God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome, who is not partial and takes no Bribe. That sounds very similar to what James makes, the argument James makes. He's not like man. He doesn't follow the normal course that men do, mankind does. Verse 18, he executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Uh, in the context here, you care for the foreigner because God as father cares for the widows, the orphans, and the sojourners. The fatherhood of God speaks of his compassion, his care, his loving covenant relationship with his people. God binds himself to his people and he says, I will treat you as children. That is my relationship, which means I will never abandon you. Now, go back to James. 
So keep that in mind. The word father has a specific nuance in Jewish understanding. The protector, the carer, the, the one who's over and, and defends those who are widows and orphans. Look at James chapter 1, verse 27. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. Wait a minute. What is James talking about? Religion that God approves is religion that does the thing that God does as Father. You see the connection? The Father... He could have said God and would have made perfect sense without it. But he brings in the analogy of Father as the one who cares for orphans and widows because in the Old Testament, that is the true norm for God as Father in his relationship with people, with his people. So if you want to please God, do the things that God does for his people. Care for the orphans and the widows because that is how God relates to his people. He cares for them. James makes the connection that the father approves of care for the widows and the fatherless. Why? Because he, as father, cares for the widows and fatherless. In their affliction, the same context comes up over and over with, relate, with relation to God as father. He cares for his children because they are afflicted. Appealing to the fatherly nature of God brings to mind, to the Jewish mind, the protection and ongoing loving covenant care of God for his people. So this is not a stylistic insertion here by James. In fact, he could have said, coming down from above, and that would be fine, sufficient for the point. But he adds this qualifier from the father of light. So James here inserts the word father to conjure up the idea of whom they have to deal with. It is the one who cares for those who are suffering. What is the context? Trials and afflictions. What is James saying by this? He cares for you. Yes, he's given you suffering, but he does it because he cares for you. There is another qualitative description here in this portion of passage. Look at the second part of verse 17. Coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. So not only is the fatherly nature of God in view, but also secondly, why does James use this? To show that the Father has full control and power. What do I mean? James says this about God, that he is the Father of lights. What does that mean? Now, there's two options. Number one, some of the more common commentaries say that it is that he is the possessor of lights, that he is the one who possesses all lights. And then secondly, uh, other commentary says that he's the source of lights. How do we understand that? So plausible is the idea that God is possessor. However, grammatically you can't make that argument. 
because if he is the possessor then in the grammar, it would mean that the head noun, which is God, is controlled by the object, which is lights. So then the lights possesses God. That makes absolutely no sense. So if you're going to go that route, grammatically that is the sense that it would bring up then. So no, it can't be possessor of lights. So then we have to deal with the source of lights. And I do take it as such. I think that makes a lot of more sense in um, the context here. Uh, let me just explain the possessor of the object a little bit more. Think of children of darkness. Children that is characterized and possessed, controlled by darkness. So there the darkness controls the child. That would be possessive. Uh, children of light. Again, children possessed by, controlled by, and dominated by light. So the light then controls the child. So if you say possessor of lights, you're implying then the light possesses, controls, and dominates God or the Father, which is not what James has in view. So grammatically, you can't make that argument. That leaves us with the source. There are other options, but they don't fit this context. Ultimately, God is the source of light, and that was what James implies here. Now, it does seem to not fit the context. Granted, it does seem to be out of place. So what then do we have to do with this word light? He's the father who cares for his children, but he relates also to these lights. It can be understood to mean the sun or the heavenly bodies. That is generally how it is understood. Again, James is thinking with a Jewish mind, writing to a Jewish group of people. So he uses Jewish language. I'm going to go to Psalm 136. Go with me to Psalm 136. In the Old Testament, the idea of God and his relationship to light relates to the fact that he controls these lights, but also, more prominently, his covenant relationship with his people. That is surprising. Now let's look at Psalm 136. What is the context? Verse 1, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. Yes, why? Because or for his covenant love, his steadfast love, his faithful love, it's translated in a variety of ways, and it has the idea of all of that, that covenant, steadfast, faithful love endures forever. That's the premise. Psalm 136. God's covenant Love is in view. So, look at verse 7. He expresses these through a variety of ways. To him, this is God, who made the great lights, for his steadfast love endures forever. Again, you see lights and God's covenant relationship with his people, his steadfast love. The mention of these great lies is particularly chosen to display the mighty power and control of God and also his covenant with his people, his loyalty to his people. It will become clear in a moment's time. The entire psalm is a demonstration of God's loyalty to them. You can see it in the repeated phrase, his steadfast love 
endures forever. You can see it in the relationship to the land or the promise of the land. They will inherit the land, for instance, in verse 21, and gave their land as a heritage for his covenant, faithful, steadfast love endures forever. God acts in accordance with his covenant faithfulness. One way that he demonstrates his covenant faithfulness to his people is by means of the signs in the sky. Note verse 26. Give thanks to the God of heaven. This is the one who possesses all heaven. For his steadfast love endures forever. What's the point? If he controls the heavens and the stars, then what does it say about his people? In absolute control over their lives. So when it uses the idea of father of lights or God in relation to light, it speaks of his constancy, his immovability in relation to his covenant with his people. I will never abandon you. If you see the stars, if you still see the sun, remember my covenant with you because it's a testimony of my faithful, steadfast, ongoing devotion to you as your God. Now, go back to James, and we're just going to pop into James and then jump out of James. James 1, 17. And I don't want you to look at the verse, but I want you to look at the verses connected to the verse. Now, those of you who have a marginal a Bible, what do you call that? Margin Bible. We have verses connected to each other. Chain reference Bible. Anybody here? It's got Bible like that? Tell me what verse comes up in James 1.17 as a reference to the Old Testament. Malachi. Numbers. I, the Lord, do not change. And Malachi. Malachi 3.6. I want you to go there. I want to prove something. We often miss this because, like I said, we think through New Testament eyes. Malachi 3.6, it's in your Bible, it's in a reference. The translators or the guys who made up your uh, Bible recognize there's a connection here. Malachi chapter 3, verse 6. There's a connection here. It's much more the fact that James is saying he's the father of lights. No, there's a lot more to it than that. Look at what he says in verse 6. For I, Yahweh, do not change Mm, that sounds awfully familiar. Yeah, that's the point that James is making. He doesn't change. He's immutable. Therefore, O children of Jacob, you are not consumed. Wow. You know what that means? This is why you still exist as a nation. This is why you're still alive. Because I have committed to the covenant that I have with you. And therefore, my covenant with you is connected to my... E- Unchangeable nature, should I say it this way? God's unchangeable nature is reflected in the covenant that he has with his people. Let's think about that. Because if he changes his covenant with his people, it means that he has changed in some way. Right? I think the covenantalists would have a little bit of a problem here. God connects the reality of the nation as still existing. This is why you are not destroyed and you will never be destroyed. Why? Because I've covenanted myself with you. 
I've promised, and you won't ever be moved. So why the connection? Because I, the Lord, do not change, which means the unchanging nature of God is instricably, intrinsically linked to his covenants. His immutability is connected to his promises, which means then he will never abandon his people, he will never go back on his promise, he will never change his mind with regard to what he has stated before. Why? Because his promises reflect the unchanging nature of his essence. See, if God goes back on his promises, then he communicates something about his nature. That is why he will never abandon Israel. So what I want you to see is that James uses Old Testament language to speak of God as Father, to show his love, his care, his concern, and his unchanging faithfulness in the covenant relationship with them. Now, I'm going to go back one step further. Jeremiah 31. And this should draw it all together. Jeremiah 31, 35. Listen to verse 35. Thus says Yahweh, who gives the sun for light by day and the fixed order of the moon and the stars for night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. Yahweh of hosts is his name. If the fixed order departs, referring to the stars, If the fixed order departs from before me, declares Yahweh, then shall the offspring of Israel cease from being a nation before me. What did God just do? He said, do you see the stars? Do you see the fixed order that I've placed in the stars? They are there as a perpetual testimony of not only my unchanging nature, but my covenant with you. If they are able to change, if they cease from being what they are, if they cease from their fixed order, then you will cease from being a nation. God has set the stars in its place as a testimony of his devotion, of his faithfulness to his people. But what is the context in Jeremiah 31? Not the old covenant, the new covenant. How do I know that? Because your Bible says above it, right? Verse 31, new covenant. Look what it says. Behold, the days are coming, declares Yahweh, and I will make a new covenant with who? With the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant I have made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke though I was their husband, declares Yahweh. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After, the days, after those days, declares Yahweh, I will put my law within their hearts, or within them, 
And I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest declares Yahweh, for I will forgive their sins, their iniquity, sorry, and I will remember their sin no more. Thus says Yahweh, who gives the sun for light and day uh, by day and the fixed order of the moon and the stars for by night. Do you know what he just did? The same testimony God made to the Old Testament covenant, he has made to the New Testament covenant. The same God who commits himself to his nation is the same God that commits himself in the New Covenant. Why did I take the time to deal with that? Go to James 1. Follow James's thought over here. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, the one who not only controls lights, but demonstrates his commitment and his covenant loyalty in the lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change, who is by nature unchangeable, of his own will brought us forth. What is that? What, what is that? Salvation. Look at the last line. That we should be the kind of first fruits of his creatures. What is that talking about? A new beginning, new first fruits, new people in the new covenant. The Jews were the first to be saved in the new covenant. What is James talking about? The establishment of the new covenant in God as ratified in the Old Testament. Jeremiah 31, Ezekiel 36, both speak about this event. And James says, I get it. God has prophesied, God has fulfilled it, this is that. The Father of lights is the one who's committing himself to saving us and giving us a law by which we live by. What does the next section deal with? Verse 19 through to um, uh, 28. The law that is given to us. In fact, look down at what James says in verse 21. Therefore, put away all filthiness, rampant wickedness, and receive with meekness what? The implanted word. Where does that come from? Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 36. The word that is put inside their hearts. James has just connected the God of the Old Testament to the God of the New Testament and says the same God who made the Old Testament covenant, who said he will never abandon his people, is the same one who says the same thing today that I will never abandon my people and will never abandon the covenant in the New Testament covenant. God prophesied that there would be life And so in James chapter 1, verse 18, God gives life. Father, as the source of the heavenly astronomical realm is there for a reason, not just as a stylistic transition into James's final point. Let me give you two things to think about. Why this word picture? Two reasons. Firstly, the unchanging goodness and sovereignty of God. If the Father of lights controls and fixes the order of the lights, if they are immovable, what does it say about his nature? Because that is the point that James is making. If you see the lights, if you, if you can understand that it is fixed, what does it say about your God? He himself is unchanging and fixed, constant. 
What does it communicate about his relationship with his people? The Father is in absolute control over all things that takes place, even the suffering that you are in. God says, by means of this analogy, I'm a good God who cares for his children. Secondly, the unchanging commitment of God. God is unchanging in his commitment and covenant to his people, both to Israel and to the New Testament covenant people. Therefore, Israel can trust him. There's a good study that you can engage in. Look at how the Old Testament uses the word rock in relation to God and his people. Rock, we may think of a small little thing that you can carry. When it uses it of God, it's the um, immovable um, boulder that he is. It speaks of his unchangeable nature and character and devotion to his people. So get this. If he promised that he will give new life in the Old Testament, and if he fulfills it in the New Testament, which is what James is referencing here, then God is demonstrating his faithfulness. He uses the same signs, the sun and the, the luminary um, objects, to say that I am faithful to both my Old Covenant and the New Covenant, which means he will fulfill the prophecies. And if he does not, he cannot be trusted. We can see in this text, and as James continues, the connection between the Old Testament prophecy of the New uh, Covenant and the relationship with it with the believers. Let me conclude with this. God is a good and giving Father. He's a good, unchanging, giving Father. James presents his theological truths to provide solace and comfort and confidence to God's people. That doesn't matter what the nature of the affliction is, he not only placed you there, but he's a faithful God in that suffering. God desires for us to see him for who he really is. The unchangeable nature of God is not just a theological truth about God's unchanging nature, but is a means to confirm the absolute surety of every promise that God has made that he himself will fulfill. That's a comfort. James provides his readers with tremendous comfort that God is by nature unchanging as a father, so he will always give us good gifts in relation to his good nature. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for being so kind and gracious toward us. You are not like man, as number says, who changes his mind. Malachi demonstrates that you are unchanging in your essence. We don't fully understand the total implication of this reality. James understood that it relates particularly to your devotion to your people. This, the lights are given as a testimony to your unchanging character. Lord, let that sink in. You are unchanging in the way that you uh, love us, unchanging in the way that you devote to us. 
pray that you would awaken our hearts to this reality and the importance of it for life and godliness. Bless us now as we move away from your word that these words and your truth would impact our lives to such a degree that we can live in hope and assurance of the good news that you've given to us. So we give thanks to you in Christ's name. Amen.